Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to the Pondering Nerdcast. This is episode 13. And today we have a very, very special episode for you guys. Um, you know, it's going to probably blow your minds, <laughs> I would say. Uh, today with me is Nate Rowe. Yo. And uh, Nate, you want to tell everybody who we have, a, you know, like who we have on the show today? Oh man, I'm super excited because we actually have the honor of having somebody on the show that was a pioneer in video gaming. Um, he was making video games before some of us were born. Uh, I mean, he goes back that far, not to make him feel old. He's a you know, great guy, great guy. Uh, but Howard Scott Warshaw, the uh, guy who made, uh, among other things, uh, the infamous E.T., uh, for Atari 2600. So um, without further ado, here's our interview with Mr. Warshaw. Hey, Mr. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a real honor having you on the show, sir. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, like I saw uh, Atari Game Over and I just, you know, I wanted to talk to you because I, I have to say, uh, originally I was one of those people that just... Um, I was ignorant, really, and you know the kind of myth that had followed ET. That the whole movie is about ET and and um, the the creation of it and stuff like that. And after that insight, I just I wanted to talk to you so bad because I consider you, sir, a pioneer. Like I am an avid video gamer, and um, I, I just feel like some of the stuff that you helped institute into the video game industry, um, you know, what you guys were creating around you is just crazy. So to have you on the show, I'm sorry, like I said, I, I hope I don't sound like a school kid rambling, but, uh, you know, it's just such an honor, man. I'm getting right into it. Um, my, I guess my first question for you was, you know, Atari was, was came out in 1977. And, uh, according to the documentary, you, you started January 11th, 1981. Uh, what made you want to get into, uh, video games? Like what, was there a video game that you played that was like, this is what I would rather do instead of, as you said, kill people for 12 cents a head for the government. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, that you bring that up. Actually, the reason I wanted to go to Atari so badly had nothing to do with video games. It wasn't really about video games for me. It was about two things. It was about working on microprocessors and doing the kind of difficult programming that I knew they were doing because I loved that challenge. And it was also about working in a more accepting and kind of a wacky environment because I felt a little stifled where I was working at Hewlett Packard because I'm kind of a wacky and wild and crazy guy and a lot crazier than the environment at most formal programming environments. So uh, I was working at Hewlett Packard, and uh, a friend of mine, a co-worker of mine, uh, they used to do what, what they'd say. They'd go home and tell Howard stories. Mm. And this guy would go home, and he would tell, because I would be acting out. I would be doing some wacky stuff at HP. They'd go home, and he was telling some stories about that to his wife, and his wife said, you know, that sounds just like what everybody does all the time where I work. Oh, where do you work? Atari. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds like a place I might enjoy. And what do they do? Oh, yeah, they work on microprocessors, which is what I did in college. Mm. And then was not doing it, Hewlett Packard. And I thought to get back to that. And games, you know, I love games. I love entertainment. But I was not like a freak for video games. 
I enjoyed that thing, and I always loved games, so I had no objection to working on video games. In fact, it sounded kind of fun to me, but really what I wanted was the style of programming challenge that they were doing there, and and, and like I said, a loose environment. That's why I went to Atari. Okay, well, you talk about the loose environment, and that's one thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about because, you know, the on the on the documentary, you know, you talk about your first day and you talk about, uh, you know, kind of how you were introduced to your office mates and stuff like that. And, um, you know, from yeah. what the from what they kind of talked about, from what everybody was saying, really, uh, that was on camera, they kind of talked about it was like a rock star environment. I mean, you guys were these rock star engineers that were, you know, leading the way uh, and stuff like I guess one of my one thing I would like to know is like, can you think of the cool like what was the coolest party that you the ner- coolest nerd party you got to go to back in the day? I, like I just like to hear something like that. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny you say that because uh, I also did I did a documentary series called Once Upon Atari, right, which is available online. It's also on GOG.com if you want to stream it. And that was a series that I did that's all about the programmers the actual programmers who were there doing it, it's all of them talking about what it was like to be there, what it was like to work there. I think it's the only real uh, story told exclusively by people who worked in the VCS department. And there's a guy named Rob DeDibble who was really a fun character back then. And what he used to say, he tells this story about how, you know, every Friday afternoon there was a party pretty much. Because we worked pretty hard. We got a lot of stuff done. And each week there would be uh, a really nice party with quality booze provided by people who cared. <laughs> and we would have a we would have a good time at that party. But you know, the announcement went out. You know, party's on in the quad. You know, come on down. And Rob talks about how you know he wasn't in any rush to get down to the party because he was so into what he was doing and what he was working on and getting his game going that. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting when you say, what's the best party that I went to? Um, there were a lot of formal parties and there were a lot of, you know, semi-informal parties, but there were also a lot of just gatherings of a few programmers together uh, just to sort of get around and they would get high or we'd do something, but we would definitely trade ideas and talk about what we were doing and trying to figure out a cool way to do something. And so actually the best parties that I went to weren't just party parties. I mean, there were a lot of those and that was fun, but the best times that I remember were times where I was just gathered around with a few of my friends and we were just sort of bantering and trading ideas about what we were looking at doing on our games or programming techniques on the system, things like that. Those were the best parties. Those turn into some long parties sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> These like creative collaboration type parties, you know what I mean? That's really exactly. Cool. You could call it a brainstorming session. What we used to have is we used to have a thing. Uh, every once in a while, we would announce there was an MRB, hmm. and MRB was being held in someone's office. You know, so people who <laughs> wanted to attend the MRB should go. So MRB stood for Marijuana Review Board. <laughs> <laughs> That was great. So that was it. So occasionally would be an MRB somewhere, and we'd go there, and we would uh, review, and we would go over stuff, and we would come up with some pretty funky stuff. And a lot of uh, a lot of the games that people ended up playing and enjoying came out of a lot of those meetings. Kind of interesting. That's that's really cool that you say that. Like one of my one of my big things is I was kind of wondering like 
when you guys, uh, and you kind of just said it, you know, you were doing it more for the uh, engineering side of it, and, and the games were kind of just the the nice plus that, that that's what you were doing, you, you were putting your efforts into. Did you, did you guys... Uh, when you were having these these uh, creative collaboration parties, like, did you guys ever think that the game industry would be where it is today? I mean, was this something that you guys knew was was crazy and going to take off, or did you think it was a fad that was going to fade off in a few years? I mean, what were your guys' thoughts back then, as as opposed oh, to? Oh no, we we totally knew this was not going away, and when the industry died and collapsed for a while, nobody thought for a second, well, that's it for games. Game is over. I mean, it, we all got the idea that games were too profound a thing and too big a thing to just disappear. We knew people were tired of the VCS, mm-hmm. right? But uh, gaming was not over. Cause also, you know, we had seen other gaming applications, although Atari didn't get it together to put them out in time to save themselves. But, uh, you know, we knew there were better systems and we knew there were capabilities for other systems. And towards the end, they were starting to design other systems. And we knew there was a lot more capacity and capability that was going to be there. And a lot of us, you know, anticipated going there. Nobody thought it was a fad back then. It was, okay. just, it was too big a thing to be a fad because it was, it wasn't, it wasn't just a toy or something else you played with. This was a new medium, right? This was the idea. It's like radio, you know, you know, I'm sure there were people who thought radio was a fad. You know, I'm sure there are people who thought TV is just a fad. It's coming and going and people be tired of it and get done with it. Mm. But it, it was like that, and we just saw it that clearly. You know, turning a television into an interactive medium, that's not something that comes and goes, right? It didn't mm. mean that games as we knew them was going to be the thing you did with that forever, but we knew that we were at the forefront of something that was just going to go and go and go. I don't think anybody who was there doubted that. Yeah, I love that quote from from the movie, um, you know, where you where you talk about that, where you say we were taking a passive medium and turning it into an interactive medium. And I think even back then, I mean, personal computers weren't weren't very popular at the time. So it very was it, it, it was this thing that would, it just took you into a different world. And it was so captivating for kids. And I do have to be honest with you, sir, that was before my time. I wasn't born until 86. So you were pioneering stuff like before I was even born and I'm not saying that to make you feel old by any means but you know it's just one of those things where it's like it's so mind-boggling to think that something that I love today um, you know those roots man I mean it's just you know like some of the things you did with ET I mean if we're going to talk about ET directly um, first off like you know like I said before I think it's very unfair that that ET got the rap that it did. Um, you know, I think it was. I mean, it, it it from from and Zach Penn did a really good job in Atari Game Over, kind of um, you know doing the, the the grand overview to help people understand. But it was very much. It had nothing to do with with ET. It had very much to do with bad marketing decisions. It had bad, very much to do with oversaturation of product. Um, you know, I mean, right. there's so mean, many Zach things. Zach did an excellent job of clarifying what was really going on. I mean, Zach did a great job on that film. That film was uh, a lot of you know A-list Hollywood people worked on that film, and they ended up doing a great job. I am really grateful and honored to have been in that film because uh, these were people who really knew what they were doing, and they made a fun film. Mm-hmm. And it's true that, you know, the whole thing, people want to lay the rap on E.T. Well, you know, I mean, every tragedy needs a face, right? You've got to put a face on a tragedy. 
And so essentially they chose mine in the form of the game. And, you know, so is that horrible? Is that an injustice? I, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, I, people, people hate the game, and as long as they've played it and they hate it, I respect those opinions. You know, I mean, a player's opinion is their own, whatever it is. And I always, I never tell a player they don't know what their opinion is or they're wrong if that's what they think about the game. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea that it's the worst game of all time, I think, is ridiculous, right? Oh, yes. At, yes, at the same time, though, I love it when people call it the worst game of all time. I would rather have it known as the worst game of all time than have it known as, no, it's an okay game that just wasn't there. I mean, it's certainly the best five-week development game of all time. I oh, guarantee you that. Oh, <laughs> I mean, like if, if you took if you told a developer nowadays and, and I'm talking even if you're making a, you know, an indie game or what we would consider an indie game now, which is like a 16, 8 bit game, uh, something like that, it, you know, and you told them that you have five weeks to get something out. It's not going to happen. I, I just don't see how it could. Um, and especially yeah, nowadays. That's what people said back then. Oh, I mean, yeah. Was, originally, that project went to my boss's boss, right? He was the head of development. And the president of the company, Kazar, called him up and said, hey, we need ET in five weeks. And he said, can't be done. You can't have it. It's just not going to happen. And so the CEO of the company, after my boss's boss told him this can't happen, he still picked up the phone and called me directly. <laughs> and just said, Howard, can you do this game in five weeks? And I said, absolutely. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, that, you got, got some big cojones, sir. I will tell you that. Like you, because <laughs> that is, well, I mean, that's one of those phone calls that I'm sure, and you kind of said it on the documentary that even people in your department would have said, no, there's no way. There's no way you can do that. You know what I mean? Well, they all and, did. I mean, what happened was that, you know, a couple of days into the project, uh, we announced it in the department and told everybody, okay, so Howard's doing ET. And everybody started grumbling. I mean, a lot of people were like, oh, because I had just finished Raiders, you know, I had done Yars, and I had just finished Raiders. So, oh, does Howard get to do all the good titles? You know, blah, blah, blah. And so I stood up in a meeting, and I said, hey, I said, E.T. is due September 1st. This was probably like August 1st or August 2nd. I said, E.T. is due September 1st. I said, anyone who wants it, raise your hand. You can have it. Anybody. Nobody said a thing. <laughs> Not even the Not grasshoppers really in the room wanted to say anything at that point. <laughs> Not you could hear the crickets. They were simulating on the screen. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and so, and that was it. And there was no more discussion about it. It was just like, really? September 1st? Except after the meeting, a couple people said, really? September 1st? You're crazy. You're crazy, Howard. What are you doing? You can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, okay. Well, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a testament to your skills. Well, it's a testament to my something. I mean, it's like I said in the movie. I mean, (laughs) I'm not sure exactly what I was full of at that time, but whatever it was, I was overflowing with it at Ah. that point. Well, it worked. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I mean, you had, you know, to your credit, though, why wouldn't you be? You had Yars Revenge, million dollar seller. Indiana Jones, million dollar seller. I mean, it's it's one of these things where, you know, and and you can almost say it with a big head and say, I was one of the only people that had million dollar sellers no matter what I put out. And I mean, that's a tip. I think I am the only engineer who every game they released was a million seller. Every single one. And that's just I such mean, a testament to... released more than one game. 
Yeah, to, to, to put something out. I mean, and I love it. <laughs> I love how Zach cut away from you before you could answer. Um, and Lance kind of wanted to ask you this uh, before he, we were talking about what we wanted to ask you before we, we got you on the phone and stuff. And one of the things that Zach cut away from in the documentary was like, but it was Steven Spielberg's fault, right? And he, <laughs> like, you didn't get to answer because he cut away. And I was like, well, you know. It wasn't still. I mean, I made the joke about, you know, well, I'm not saying I'm blaming him or something. You know, he was there to approve it, but that's it. You know, Spielberg was a very cool guy, and Spielberg had a very large investment in this game coming out on time. Mm. And so, you know, that's why I wanted him to approve it. He was motivated. Okay. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this. In all honesty, because you said in the documentary, you know, Spielberg, when you first met with him, he was kind of like, well, can we do it like Pac-Man, you know? And you were like, no, this is this is my vision. This is what it needs to be. This is how I want to do it. You know what I mean? Uh, in retrospect, would you, if you had the chance to go back and change it, would you change it or would you have made the same game that you made? If I could go back knowing what I know now and, and face the project again, I would make the same game, but I would clean it up. Mm. I, would, okay. I would know enough now. To, I would not try to do a Pac-Man knockoff. I mean, it, it did blow my mind, the idea that Steven Spielberg, one of the most original movie uh, creators in time, mm. his first reaction was when you say, hey, I want to do a game for your movie. He says, oh, why don't you do a knockoff of another game? Like, mm-hmm. really, Steven? Really, I don't know. <laughs> it was like, no, I'd go back and I'd tweak it. But the thing is, the funny thing is, like, if I would have tweaked that game, and there was, like, I could have I probably in four to eight hours gotten rid of most of the major problems if I really would have had my head into making that change, but it was just, I was pretty done with it by the end of that month. That was brutal. Mm. Brutal. But well, if I, I would have had it together to go back in and do that, what would have happened was, it would have gone from a game that became extremely controversial to a game that was an okay game that a lot of people played and nobody really super complained about, and we wouldn't be talking right now, mm-hmm. right? So it's like <laughs> that is an interesting that really is an interesting thought ride. on it. That's true. That and is uh, very very true. You know, and I'll I'll tell you the uh, the other thing about it is. You know, I really, I don't believe, and a lot of people don't really believe it's the worst game of all time, but like I was saying, I really prefer people call it the worst game of all time because, you know, I did Yars Revenge also, and Yars Revenge is frequently recognized as one of the best games of all time, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if E.T. is one of the worst games of all time, then I have the greatest range of any game designer <laughs> in history. That, right. Yes, I'm you do. It, it, in fact, you would that that would definitely uh, that would definitely qualify you for that. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah, I, so mean, I found ways to look at it that are uh, that work for me. That's I know. Sure. I know you're a practicing psychotherapist now, but like, have you ever with with, with uh, mediums now as far as like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and stuff? Have you ever? thought about uh, trying to throw up a crowdfunded project where you could make a remake of E.T. and make it uh, cleaner and, and stuff like that, like by today's standards? Well, like, have you ever thought about that's that? Already, that's already been done. It In has. Fact, oh, toward okay. the end of the movie, I was presented with a copy. They, they, they cut that scene out of the movie. Mm. But there's a scene in the movie where I play a cleaned-up version of E.T. There's a number of hackers and people out there in homebrews who have taken the code 
tweaked mm-hmm. it around, you know, fixed some of the problems with the pits. They actually did a very nice job on it. They cleaned up and they did a good deal of the stuff I would have done anyway. They did a few other things too that I thought were okay. And it was, uh, and I got to play it. And he has a scene of me playing the game fixed up. You know, and oh, how oh, it is. I don't know and why he cut fun. that. So that would have been a great done. scene. <laughs> now, he, had, he had to choose. He had a lot of good material apparently to work with because there was, uh, it was tough whether they were going to make it a one-hour movie or if they were going to make an hour-and-a-half movie and who was going to be in and out and what they were doing. They had a lot of really good footage right. for that movie. I was just one part of that. They had a lot of really good stuff. But, yeah. you know, they had to decide, you know, how big the movie's going to be and what's in and what's out. Those are always, those are hard decisions. But, uh, well, one of, the, hard decisions. One, of the, one of the big moments in the movie for me is right at the end, uh, you know, towards the end of the, of the documentary when uh, it's unearthed, and the the reporter turns to you and says, how are you feeling right now? And it's I almost feel like that's a dirt to dirt moment because you're sitting there choking up. You know, I mean, it, it's something that you can just tell how much this meant to you. You know what I mean? It, it's it was literally somebody. I mean, there's few people in the world where you can physically dig up somebody's past in front of them. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah, yeah I could only imagine. Yeah, I could only imagine the emotion. Like now that you've had time to reflect what what. You know, what was going through your head when, when that was going down? Well, there's, there's no amount of reflection that accounts for it because the truth is when I see the movie, I've seen the movie probably seven or eight times at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, we're talking about the movie Atari Game Over. It's available on Netflix and Showtime, right? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I just want to make sure we're talking about the same film, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know we are. <laughs> nice plug, though. Good good. plug. <laughs> but, uh, no, the thing is that, and, and that was a very, very significant thing for me. Okay. I think you really have hit on something because what I was saying was that the reason reflection doesn't really matter is because to this day, even when I rewatch the film after, you know, months of time and knowing what's there and seeing it, I still get totally choked up at that point in the movie. I mean, I watching the movie, get choked up. I still feel that. And what I realized, because I have thought about, so what is that? What's going on with that? And uh, because the thing was, I didn't expect, I really didn't expect the cards to be there. I always believed it wasn't there. I've said that many, many times. But I was really happy to be wrong about it. But the thing that got me, everybody thinks, they're like, oh my God, look at this. It proved that this was true. And look, there's your game. And I buried this game. How bad was the game to be buried? It's like, that really didn't have anything to do with it at all. What it was, was look where I was, right? So I'm standing in the middle of a crowd of hundreds of people in the middle of a sandstorm. I mean, this was a really bad sandstorm and people had been standing in it Mm. for hours waiting for something to happen. Nobody knew if it was going to be there, but all these people just on the anticipation of something like this happening, and it was just this, it was happening. It was an event. Right, it was this amazing moment that was created with all these people all focused on this one thing. And then when this thing pops and it comes out, well, for one thing, it makes it a much better movie. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but there it was, and so all the anticipation, all the excitement of all these people paid off in that one second. It all paid off, and there it was. And what I realized was at the center of this whole swirling mess was something that I did 32 years ago. Hmm. 
I really felt that Indiana Jones moment or that that kind of uh, close encounter of the third kind uh, moment that you were talking about, uh, you know, where it's like, yeah, the dust storm. And then you have this, you know, this unearthing of something. And it's like, we found it. We found it. And it was crazy. I do want to say, like, I do want it to be uh, on record if anybody hasn't seen the documentary itself. I mean, E.T. was only like 10 percent of the games that were found. Um, it wasn't E.T. that was buried out there. It was Atari that was buried out there. Um, you right. Know, it, I mean, the, the whole myth was at the same time both validated and debunked, right? There was stuff there. Atari did bury a bunch of stuff there, but it wasn't about E.T. It was just about emptying a warehouse. Mm. But in that moment, I mean, the thing that was huge for me was the idea that there was something that I did that was still creating excitement and entertainment and joy and fun and anticipation. Yeah. And it's like, how many 2,600 games do people talk about today? Right. The idea, you know, when you do media, like you guys do media, right. You do a podcast. Yeah. Right. And so, and what's your goal? I mean, I'm a media producer also. I mean, I do a lot of different things, right. I'm not just a programmer, writer, psychotherapist, presenter, speaker. I'm also a media producer. And writer and stuff like that. So it's when you produce media, your goal is to generate social discourse, right? Mm. You want to create interest. You want people, you want to do something that stimulates people and makes them, you know, react, think, interact. And because of what you put out there, right? That's what you do with media. And that's the way I always look at games. It was a, it was a game, but it was also a piece of broadcast media. That's the way I looked at it. And mm. to see a piece of media that I put out there nowadays, it is hard to get something a week later that still is getting hits. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, the mind is so the, fickle with, with trending on Facebook and Twitter. The mind is so fickle as to what's important and what's, you know, what you're going to remember in, in a week. Yeah, you're, you're so correct on that. Right. So I created a situation. You could say I enabled a failure because if nobody makes the game, they don't do all this stuff and nothing really happens and things go on. Atari fails anyway, but there's really fewer things to blame. So, but I create, I was able to make this thing happen. And because mm. of that, all this stuff went on. People were still talking about it. Then there were urban myths and legends about it. So for all these years, stuff had, there had been focus and excitement and anticipation. I've been doing interviews about it for like ever. And <laughs> I, I, I love it, right? It's fun to participate in that. And the idea that I was able to create a situation, to create the, the, the key part that enabled all of this focus and all of this media attention and all of this social discourse, it made me feel like a tremendous success as a media producer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, a hundred percent. I mean, in, in uh, like I said, and I said it before. I think you are a tremendous success, uh, sir. I don't care what anybody ha- ever has to say about ET or that era. I mean, um, to do what you guys did, um, uh, you know, ET. Like, uh, I, I think a lot of people said it on the documentary. ET might not have been the best game, but you know, it was definitely not the worst. And even if people want to say it's the worst, again, that's doing nothing but kind of bolstering you up again you know what i mean if anything it's an amazing production for what i mean for for a five-week game i think it's an amazing production and people who understand making games understand that but you know players they don't care how long it took to make a game and they shouldn't 
you know, to them, it's just about the game experience, the quality of the game experience. And there are problems with the quality of the game experience in ET. I'm totally, I'm the first to admit that. I can even tell you what they are, you know, theoretically. <laughs> right. uh, it's just the idea of having created and participated in that. I mean, each one of my games, I wanted to do something extraordinary. Yars Revenge was about first. I wanted to create a bunch of things that had never been done and establish new standards, and I think I did. You know, it was the first game with pause mode. It was the first game without a frame. It was the first game where the score is on a separate thing, so it's not interfering with your imaginary play space and letting it be bigger in your head, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that happened in Yars Revenge for the first time that became standards in video games. And, uh, and Raiders, I just wanted it to be the biggest game on the 2600. Certainly at the time it was, and not just the biggest in terms of number of screens, but the biggest game impression, right? Mm. There, are, there are games that have more screens, but they're kind of repetitive screens in those games in a lot of cases. It's just sort of a similar screen over and over again. But this had really different scenarios. At least that's what I tried to do. And I tried to really replicate the game. With E.T., I still, even though I only had five weeks, I wanted to do something big. I wanted to do something innovative, so I created a 3D world that you play on. And yes. a regeneratable game where the game objective is live and you can have more play and the game will have more legs. And, uh, you yeah, know, I don't know if I completely may accomplished all that, but yeah, it's, uh, the thing is, I'm, uh, I'm a big dreamer, right? I mean, I shoot for big goals. I don't, if I'm, to me, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing the hell out of it and just doing something amazing. And if it doesn't always work well, that's the way it goes, but I'm still going to go into a project expecting something amazing to happen. When I work with clients, you know, my goal is to do everything I can to really deliver them to a much better place. It's just that's the way I approach everything that I do. And and what's what's sad about that is that nowadays, you know, that that – we have so many different game companies and so many different developers uh, and so many, you know, gears that are in the big machine that is the game industry now. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of these things where it's uh, as a consumer, right, we sometimes feel like it, some of these companies have three or four years working on a game and then they'll still have to put out some 14 gig day one patch to fix all the stuff that uh, was broken. And it was mostly because due to, you know, time constraints and due to fun constraints and stuff like that, you just eventually have to get a product out. And, um, you know, so it, just to think about that, it, it, where some people might take four years. And even though back then on Atari games, you know, the average time was five or six months, I believe was what was said, um, you know, five weeks. That is just I mean, to put anything out and, and, and especially something with the scope of E3, because like you said, it was this three dimensional world. It wasn't just these repetitive screens. It was this world that you could explore. Um, and I mean, to have all that stuff, you put Easter eggs in it, um, which I, I believe was the first time anybody asked if they could put it wasn't the first easter egg the first easter egg was an adventure i believe but this was the first time that uh you had went to your bosses and asked if you could put easter eggs in the game correct well actually yours revenge was the first one i did that in all of my games oh Every okay. one of my I'm games sorry. has an easter egg yours revenge has, has uh, the hswwsh thing okay right? and and that's and that's a key that's not just an easter egg when you find it the key is to tell you that the meaning of yar is to turn it backwards and, and, and see that it's ah. red. Okay, because the name Ray Kazar, who is the CEO of Atari, is hidden in the names of yar and Razak for the solar system the game is played in. And it's, uh, so that was in 
I mean, in every one of my games, I put in signatures. I put my initials in. So in Yards, there's an HSW. And then in Raiders, uh, there's an HSW2 because it's my second game. But in, Raider, in Raiders, there's also a Yard. You can find a Yard. Because in every game that I would do, uh, when I put my Easter eggs in, I would put in an HSW with the number of the game. And then I would have the the main character of every one of my previous games. You'd be able to find that somewhere in the game. So in ET, there's an HSW three. I mean, there's a lot of signatures and Easter eggs in, in ET. There's an HSW three. There's a yar. You know, sometimes when you, if you under the right circumstances, you heal the flower, it turns into a yar and flies out of the pit. Uh, the next round, it'll turn into an Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also, if you look at the, the phone pieces, if you look at the graphics of the phone pieces, each of the three phone pieces, if you look at them carefully, you'll notice that one of them is an H, one of them is an S, and the other one is a W. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, uh, That's cool. There's also a JMD in there, which is for Jerome Demurit, who was the graphics designer on that game. And oh. so I even gave him a uh, signature in there, so we worked out a way for uh, his initials to show up. And we got him in there. There's a, there's a lot of Easter eggs. So for the five weeks, I still got a few other fun things in. <laughs> well, that's really cool. I guess, uh, you know, we're kind of getting to the uh, to the close. I know you have to be on your way here pretty soon. But I guess before we close, I'd kind of just like to ask, I mean, what would your advice be to anybody that's trying to get into the game industry? I mean, uh, or, or just in media in general. I mean, uh, you know, like kind of how we do, we, you know, we, we do our podcast every week and stuff like that. Um, to anybody that's trying to get in, into either development or game journalism itself, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of advice would you give to somebody? Well, you know, a writer writes, you know, people say that all over the place, but it's true. So if you're going to write, you've got to do it. Uh, game maker makes games, designers design. You know, you've got to do what you do. And you have to be prepared to, um, okay, I was in, I, I have, uh, my bachelor's is in both math and economics, but I have a minor in theater. And my theater teacher, there was a guy, uh, he used to teach theater, and what he used to say is he was, he was finishing up his stuff. He was going to get ready to go pursue a career in theater. And what he would say is he goes, I'm preparing to systematically starve myself. Because he knew it was going to be a brutal, rough, long road. And he was preparing to just be able to endure for a while to, to, and persevere through to become successful with it. So my first piece of advice would be you've got to be really committed to what you're doing. Because there's a lot of people who say they want to make games. If you want to get into media, you just got to, now it's so easy to produce media, and it's also very easy to find out how hard it is to make it stick. Mm-hmm. Right? So you just put it out there, and you got to find ways to get people to pay attention to it. If you want to become a game maker these days, you have to start with that place, and then you have to get a lot of education first and training and a lot of skill set before you can even begin to start to drive yourself crazy trying to break into the industry. Mm-hmm. It's a brutal, brutal place to work. When I, I love- was doing it, well, let me say this. When, when I was doing it back in the early 80s, uh, people worked at it all the time because we loved what we were doing so much. Nowadays, you will work at it all the time because people demand you work all the time. And it's, that's not exactly the same thing. 
you don't get the same degree of ownership of your project that you used to when it was just your project, of course. But you're still a part of it. You'll still have your name in the credit. And when you see a product that you help make on the shelves in a store, that is an unbelievably good feeling. So there's a huge, if you can stay the course and make it through, there's a huge payoff for you. But don't kid yourself about thinking, I'll just drop over there and say hello and I'll be working on a game next thing. It takes a lot of work, a lot of commitment, and uh, a lot of sacrifice to get there. But if you get there and you make a game, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, uh, it was, it's, it's funny. Like I, I kind of said that to Lance before we, before we called you, you know, I, I thought it was hilarious that there are video game design schools now that are pretty much, like you said, it's mandatory that you know these things just for basic game function and, and mechanics and stuff nowadays. And when, uh, you know, it, it was somewhere on the documentary, it said somebody asked you, you know, how did you learn how to design the game? And you said, oh, I read the manual. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I heard that because I just thought that was great. You know what I mean? I, it was like you, you came in, you had this creative, you, you read the manual and you started making games that were, you know, just it, it was pioneering the way to what we have today. You know what I mean? So I just thought that was it's crazy. True. Well, I mean, it was, it was hard work. It wasn't an easy thing to do, but it was a simpler process then than it is now, mm-hmm. you know? So it was easier to do that then, but it was true. Also, I don't think, you know, people keep telling me I'm just not a typical guy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was all the dashikis back in the day. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I, I still miss my dashiki. Every time I think I want to go get one, my wife says, no, you <laughs> Well, Mr. Warshaw or Howard, I'm sorry. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Um, and thank you just for, uh, again, from for as a gamer, thank you for all that you've done and, and pioneering the way for us, you know, back in the day and stuff. So, Well, Nate and Lance, I mean, you guys are entirely welcome. The honor was really mine. It's a lot of fun to do this, and I'm really pleased you had me on. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. All right, guys, that was our interview with Howard Scott Warshaw. If you want to find out more about him and what he's doing, definitely check out his website at hswarshaw.com or you can follow him on Twitter at hswarshaw. Also, don't forget to check out his documentary film, Once Upon Atari, and check him out in Atari Game Over. That's available on Netflix and Showtime. Also, show us some love on iTunes and Stitcher too. You know, just rate and subscribe. Leave some comments, you know, critical you know about what we can do better and uh because we love you and we love the feedback and don't also forget to check us out on gamerebellion.com we are the official podcast for that website so you know definitely show us some love there as well until next time we'll see you in the next episode bye